What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? Welcome back. Play. When I say the word, you have an image in your mind. You know what I'm talking about, whether it's a board game, video game, sports, playing tag as a child in the schoolyard. And these are all games that people play. But it's very different from the play we're going to be talking about today. Maybe you've heard this phrase. Kids don't just play anymore. I know we've definitely talked about that uh, on the podcast in past episodes when we're addressing the impacts of social media on youth. The data we talked about there showed that kids have less unsupervised, sort of unstructured play. Going to the park with friends and just doing whatever. But watch little kids when they're left to sort out play on their own, and you'll see some kind of organized chaos. Watch them run around, chase each other, knock each other over, and then laugh hysterically. This is very specific, and as it turns out, a very important type of play called rough-and-tumble play. And on this episode, Dr. Sergio Pellis joins me to talk about play, specifically rough-and-tumble play. Serge has been studying this form of play for a long time in, selects, in the select group of animals that do it. And as you'll hear, engaging in this behavior is crucial for the proper development of the brain, mainly the prefrontal cortex, which sits at the front of your brain. This area is responsible for a variety of functions and behaviors that are important as adults. Without this playful interaction in our early days, the prefrontal cortex physically doesn't develop correctly, and it leaves adults at risk for behavioral delays. So we talked about how Surge came to understand exactly what play is, how you can quantify the interactions between individuals, and why this is important to understanding and, and giving a definition to what exactly play is, and then be able to further ask experimental questions about the behavior, and eventually link that to the brain and social development. So in this conversation, we talk about play, but we also touch on things like learning and whether learning to be, for example, afraid of snakes is hardwired or something you learn. The nature versus nurture intersection features prominently in this episode, and it's super fascinating to me. It's something that I, as a biologist, I'd thought about a lot in the past and probably leaned more towards the nature side. But I'm getting more into this idea uh, as of late, and I'm really keen to understand more and more how the nature side fits in. And behavioral traits are really interesting because you know, they're not f physical in the sense of eye color, hair color, height, this kind of thing. There is a learned aspect, but as Serge explains to us, there is a, a hardwired innateness to things like learning and playing that then gets sharpened by the environment. He also points out that environment itself is a, is a very uh, important context that you have to understand the life history of an, or, of an organism or the situation someone finds themselves in as they're developing these skills or learning these behaviors is really, really important and can't be omitted when you're studying things like play and the evolution of behavior. We also touch on whether animals have emotions and we touch on uh, how play, you know, what this all means for us as human adults. It was a great conversation. Thank you, thank you to Serge for joining us. And let's get to it. But first, as always, 
Shout out to Freak Motif for the music. And please, please, please rate, subscribe, follow wherever you're getting your podcast. This helps us out so much, helps out our visibility, helps out spreading the show. So leaving a review, subscribing to the, to the channel on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, is hugely, hugely helpful. As always, you can get in touch with us. Uh, follow the link in the show description to the website, toobradforyou.wordpress.com, and you'll find all of the information there on how to support us and how to get in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Instagram at toobradforyou. You can always send us a message there. And of course, let's not forget the Newsly app. Too Brad For You is featured on the Newsly app, which is the all-in-one audio super app. For iOS and Android, it picks the most trending articles on the web on topics you choose at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. We're not talking about those stupid robot voices you hear on TikTok and Instagram. In this way, the entire web becomes listenable for the first time all in one place. And if you're listening to podcasts, it's because you hate to read. Who likes reading these days, right? Have everything read to you with the Newsly app. Browse articles from topics you choose and just start playing. You can follow any topic as specific as you like, from sports, tech, business, science, Bitcoin, eh, maybe not these days, or even the Kardashians. Whatever you want, you can find the latest articles and again, have them read to you aloud. Who likes reading? Nobody. And they have podcasts as well. Like I said, we're featured. If you download the Newsly app, uh, you will see us in the featured podcast tab. They also have digital radio. Download and use Newsly for free from www.newsly.me. That's newsly, N-E-W-S-L-Y dot M-E, or from the link in the description, and use the promo code TUBRAD that I will also put, also put in the description, and you will receive one month free premium subscription. So you can get Newsly and use it for free, but for that premium subscription, use the promo code to Brad, all one word. Go to www.newsly.me to learn more about the Newsly app or download it from wherever you get your apps. Serge, thank you so much for thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for uh, taking the time out of your day today, out of your snowy winter Alberta day to join me here online. How are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. Yeah. So I guess, you know, the for the listeners, I'll give just a tiny bit of context here that might not be in the intro. We do know each other. We've known each other for a while. So this isn't a cold call. This isn't the first time we've talked. You, in fact, are, I guess would we could say responsible for me being in Europe because you, you're the one <laughs> that taught my wife all about play and ultrasonic vocalizations and got her, got the research bug into her, I guess. And that's what that's what brought us all all here. So thanks, thanks, Serge. Thank you for that. Well, I'm glad this worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe then, with that context in mind, uh, why don't you just start? You can give us sort of your your just the sort of you know high level what it is you're doing, professor at the U of L uh, in the neuroscience department, studying play. Yeah. So let me give you a little bit of background as to how I got here, because like, yeah, please. Like as as you as you just introduced your own experience, you you never end up where you think you're going to be when you first start this kind of stuff. So, I, I first got interested in play as a starting graduate student 
I was interested in development. I, I was in a zoology department, so I was very much influenced by ethology. And, and one of the missing parts of the story about animal behavior that, that, that wasn't dealt with a lot was development. So I was really interested in looking at some, some project that involved development. And my supervisor, or at least my prospective supervisor, showed me this 16 millimeter movie that sort of shows you how old I am. 16 millimeter movie that he took in his backyard of two Australian magpies in, in the garden, grabbing one another and ro rolling around the ground wrestling. And they look like puppies. I've never seen this before in, in, in a bird. And I said to him, well, what the hell are they doing? And he said, well, no one knows, right? So that's my introduction to play. And I thought, oh, well, perfect. You know, this is a three to four year project. I'll study playing magpies and, and solve the mystery of play and then move on to something else. <laughs> well, it's, it's now, God, yeah, about 45 years later. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm still trying to solve the mystery of play and I'll probably <laughs> die before the mystery is solved. But the interesting thing is that the way I started approaching it was looking at what, what are they actually doing? What's the behavior that, that, that they're engaging in? Can I understand the organization of the behavior? And that led to all kinds of explorations of different methods for disambiguating um, behavioral organization. And one of the methods I learned was this choreographic technique, which is very similar to... Um, um, a, a dance notation, but it, it gave you a way of being able to take film from animals out in, in parks and, and so on, bring it home, and then have a way of trying to figure out, okay, who's doing what, what are the movements, are there patterns that are repeated, et cetera, et cetera. Then I, get, I, I got my PhD and was unemployed for two years because it was all very interesting, but no one else apparently really gave us stuff about play. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got, I got a, a letter from this guy in the United States, University of Illinois, saying, well, I, I, I learned that you, you know how to use this choreographic notation for analyzing behavior. Would you be interested in coming and doing a, a postdoc in my lab? So I look at his name, I go, oh, yeah, actually, he's quite a famous physiological psychologist. And it would be doing um, animal models of Parkinson's disease. And he was very interested in looking at the actual dynamics of the movements that, that they lose as the disease progresses and, re and, re and they regain as the disease can be rescinded. So I thought, oh, well, I'm not getting anywhere studying play in a zoology environment. So... It sounds like a, a good, and at least he's interested in the skill set I have. So I, I went, I came to the United States and uh, worked with him for quite a few years. And, but then I had the opportunity also on the side, get back to looking at play. And I started looking at rats playing because the value of, of rats is, well, you can do experimental work with rats in a way that I couldn't do with free living birds. And so and, and the techniques that I started learning from this sort of neuroscience 
perspective enabled me to do manipulations on the brain and other aspects of, of the animal's physiology that would give me insight into how the play is organized, how it changes over age and, and so on. And so I ended up incorporating neuroscience into my repertoire of, of how to approach this problem of trying to understand play. And it was because of the combination of the, the movement techniques that I, that I had, plus this uh, neuroscience angle, that eventually I, ended, I got a job here in, in Canada in, at the University of Lethbridge. And, and then once I had my own lab, I could actually, okay, now I've got to get some money and actually run the experiments I want to run. And so for the first 15 years running experiments, trying to understand more about the development and organization of playing rats and then looking at different aspects of their neurobiology. And then eventually got to the point where I understood this enough to be able to do the kind of experiment that would actually tell me, okay, what are the rats actually gaining from all this play stuff that it makes it worthwhile to, to do it? And what we discovered was that the uh, playing in the, in the juvenile period, which is the period around weaning, which is around the early 20s, to sexual maturity, which is in the late 40s, 50s, days of age. So for a rat, a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and and what we discovered is that if rats don't get the right kind of peer-peer play experience at that time, they end up not having anatomically normally developed prefrontal cortices. And this area of the cortex is, is what is one of the main central parts of the neural circuit, which enable us, including us, to engage in what are called executive function, that is decision-making, impulse control, emotional regulation, short-term memory. So basically all the things that enable you to function on a moment-by-moment basis. And indeed, rats mm -hmm. that haven't had play so, are deficient in these skill sets. Incredible. You said a lot there, and it's a great uh, overview of sort of the history of the career. And I love that because it's a very standard it seems like a standard uh, scientific career, but maybe people don't realize how much um, if you're not, if you haven't gone through academia, how much, you know, first you start off with this thing of like, oh, well, here's a question. Here's a mystery that nobody knows. So that's perfect. That's a perfect project as you know, I could work on something that no one's done before. And then you do the PhD and then there's stretches of unemployment and there's stretches of, well, I'm not really getting to do the stuff that I want to do, but I, I found some work. So that's good. And then eventually you keep pushing, keep pushing, you get there. So I, the, the, the story for those who are maybe starting grad school or, you know, thinking about grad school or something is a good one. Yeah. Like, don't give up, I guess, is, is, the, is the, yeah. the thing there. But then you also said so much. Yeah, you said so much about play and that there's a lot to unpack. And I love that we ended there with uh, it's important. Like, it's, it's seriously important for development of the behavior, but also the brain. There's a, there's a physical brain development that needs to happen or that play allows to happen. So that's fascinating. But the way that you put it, um, understanding the organization of play and the development of play, and maybe we could start there because you say play, everyone kind of understands what that is. You know, you see kids, you know, we've all played, you play with toys, you play with other kids. But there's something 
that you've you've been able to show that there's like various kind of specific movements and this notation thing that you, you're talking about that you studied, you can actually quantify. Okay, well, then they do this movement and the other one does this movement and you can see increases if, you know, you manipulate the brain in a way they do more of this or, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that's really fascinating that there's a way to, to quantify, quantify behaviors uh, and maybe you could just lay out for us, like, what are some of the fundamentals of play? Like, what makes an interaction play versus just a dog chasing another dog or something like this? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so let, let me zero in on exactly the kind of play I'm talking about. All right. Because when I contrast the playful version of this behavior and a non-playful version, it'll be really crystal clear. So the kind of play that that's important to rats and I think is important to, to this kind of brain development is social play. And it's mostly rough and tumble play. So two animals, be they two monkeys, two kids, two rats, come together and they wrestle one another. Now, in that wrestling, in that rough and tumble play, they're competing to gain some advantage. Now, if you're a rat, the advantage you're trying to gain is to come up to the other rat and get your snout, the tip of your nose, and rub it into the back of the neck of the other rat. And then the other rat will try <laughs> to block you from doing that. Okay? So the whole competition, all this rumbling around, is all about, I want to rub your, 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 the back of your neck. Now, when you look at it that way, and people have made this mistake, is when you look at it that way, it looks like, well, that's sort of similar to what rats or animals in generally do when they're engaged in serious fighting. They're competing to, mm. to hit something. In people, it's competing to hit the face. In, mm -hmm. If you're two deer, it's competing to clash heads. If it's dogs, it's competing to bite the back of the neck or the throat. It looks very similar to serious fighting, but when you when you use movement notation to try to unpick, well, what exactly are they doing? Most of the time, if you're looking at a serious fight, you go, I can I can end up once I understand what the target they're trying to strike, bite, or do whatever to is. Then what you can do is you can predict what the movement of this animal is by the movement of this animal. Because as this animal is moving that target away, this animal will move around to gain access to that target, right? And the same with rats. If the back of the neck is the target, once you know that, you can see that the movements of one animal are dictated by what the other animal is doing to protect, protect its target. So in that sense, you go, oh, yeah, play fighting, rough and tumble play, is attack and defense of a particular target or gaining a particular advantage. All very good. But then you ask, well, then how is that different from serious fighting? The reason why young rats may look playful compared to adult rats is, well, because young animals are a little bit less motorically sophisticated. They're not as good at moving. Their, their capacity to be swift and so on is not quite adult yet. So it could be just an artifact of immaturity, right? So, and in fact, a lot of people before our work had assumed that the rough and tumble play of juvenile rats was just immature aggression. Mm. But then when you look at the details of the movements, you go, well, hang on, but sometimes one rat will do something that doesn't make sense with regard to 
what the other rats doing. The classic example that just sort of opened our eyes to this was when rats play fight, one of the most, as juveniles, one of the most common thing is as this animal approaches the back of the neck, the other one will defend itself by rolling over on its back and so keep the, the nape facing the ground and then using its paws and so on to push this one away as this one's still trying to get at the, at, at the bottom. Occasionally, what the rat on top does is you go, well, it still has the advantage because it's got its hind legs anchored on the, on the ground. It can use its forepaws to hold the, the one on its back down, try to hold its head and then reach around and get at the nape. That makes sense from a combat point of view, attack and defend. But then sometimes the one on top, what it'll do is it'll stand on the belly of the rat on the bottom with all four feet. So now when the one on the bottom is squirming, <laughs> the one on top loses its stability. And in fact, because it is a back and forth attack and defense, the, the animal that initially defends itself will also launch counterattacks at the nape of the other animal. When the rat on top stands on top of the other rat with all four feet, when the one on the bottom launches a counterattack, its chance of reversing the pattern, so gaining the advantage, is increased three or four times fold. So in fact, if think, think of, a, of a serious fight, if you're in a barroom fight, you're not going to do something that increases the chances of your opponent punching you in the face. You're going to do everything to try to stop that. And yet here's an animal giving the, the defender an opportunity actually to reverse roles. That makes absolutely no sense from the point of view of serious fighting. And so once we saw that in rats, mm -hmm. we did similar analyses with all kinds of other animals, primates, pigs, and other things. And sure enough, one way or another, in a, in a play fight, there is this essentially built-in way that one animal, once it's got an advantage, will sometimes self-handicap itself in such a way that the other animal can gain the advantage right and you go that makes play fighting unique because to confirm this we've studied serious fighting in lots of animals as well and you'd never see that kind of i'm, I'm voluntarily going to let you punch me in the face that just does not happen <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it's those dynamics that even though superficially this looks like serious fighting the actual rules that the animals are following make it playful rather than serious by Having the self-handicapping built in, it means that you can have reciprocal exchanges. And probably most of your audience would, if you think back to the schoolyard, you know that, hey, when I used to play with this person, it wasn't much fun because I'd win all the time. I'd always get the advantage. But when I played with this person, that wasn't much fun either because they always beat me. So I, I lost interest. You, the kids you like playing with are ones that, you know, you sometimes had a chance of gaining the upper hand and sometimes they had the chance and, and it's fun for both of you, right? You still compete, so you're still making it tough, but not so tough that one, one always wins. So this reciprocity that's built into these interactions in, in, in these animals, in these contexts, make it playful and not serious. And so... It's the dynamics that really bring out the, the distinction between whether it's play or not play. And then you wouldn't have known that without being able to 
quantify the behaviors and really break down exactly what you're yeah. seeing in this yeah. in this oftentimes really quick interaction, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then once, you, once you're able to plug that knowledge into development, right, then you can trace, well, when does play first starting in rats? It starts just before they're weaned, so in the late teens, right, days, and it sort of tends to decline as they hit sexual maturity. And then when you look at what kind of what's this reciprocation, this turn taking? When, when a when is play most frequent, and b when is this pattern of ensuring reciprocity most common? It's most mm -hmm. common between thirty and forty days. And then when you do experiments that deny rats play in that age range, is when you get the most significant effects on development of the brain and, and the, the various social skills that are associated with those brain areas. So that sort of makes it very convincing that it's the dynamics that creates the opportunity at this particular age period to ensure that you have these developmental effects on brain and behavior. Okay, so this is, this is fascinating to me. And I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it sounds a bit, uh, I don't know, ignorant in a way, but so you have this this critical period where you show that if they don't do this playful behavior with this reciprocity and stuff, the physical development of the brain and then the associated effects of that on their behavior is is most likely. Mm -hmm. So there's a critical window there. So the behavior, the outward behavior of the animal has an like an inward developmental effect. Right, like it's almost like an exercise training for the brain, if we yep. could use yep. that metaphor, yep. right? So then, where does the instinct to play come from? Like the behavior itself must be somehow, you know, hardwired in their genetics, or do they do they learn it from their the parents or older rats or slightly older rats or something? Do you see what I'm getting at? That it's like they kind of like they're they're born with the ability to play and they know how to do it and there's this these somewhat complex rules but they seem to just know how to do it and that has a real effect on the on the brain development so there it must be you know it must be selected for this trait yep. this this ability to play yeah does that make sense yep so it both developmental studies in our lab and other labs have have shown that yeah you 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 actually don't need any any social experience to know how to play, right? So you can be a completely ignorant mm. rat, never interacted with anybody, get to the right age, and you you seem to play normally. Okay. But the the flip side is what you can do is because I said this this frontal area of the brain is what benefits the most from play. But if you actually remove not only this frontal area, but remove the whole cortex. So all you're left with is the brainstem the animals still play normally at the right age. So you don't even need a cortex to, to play properly, right? But, but that's Whoa. where the subtlety comes in. So what happens is when you're playing, so you, you've got all the capacity to play that's built in into your brainstem, okay? But your ability to subtly modify that play depending on what your partner does, depending on who your partner is, really depends on using this part of the brain. And so it's those subtle aspects of how you 
modify the play depending on context that actually does the training of that prefrontal cortex. So, yeah, it's baked in, but then it's using it and using it in slightly different ways that actually provides the benefits that I've been talking about. Yeah. Okay. So this is, again, maybe this is, this will maybe stretch a bit beyond, you know, play and, and cause it, it just seems that it then it shows that, you know, behaviors, uh, of course, they're, we, we understand they're important for social animals, you know, things like this. And, and even just, you know, you could think of fight or flight behaviors, like all these behaviors that there is some kind of, you know, baked in element to them. But then they also you have to run through them to, you know, further train the mind and stuff. So what does it say about I mean, do you call what do you call that? Do you call that instinct? Is it just it's it's something you're just born with this ability to do this? Or I guess I'm kind of if I wanted to be skeptical of it, I would say they maybe they're maybe they're seeing things in other animals at a very young age that's informing that that we just can't detect or something like that. Or do you think it's really hardwired baked in there? Well, you can even do more extreme things. So there's a paradigm that was developed back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, where you can take a newborn rat, you put it in a styrofoam cup, keep it warm, and you have a tube inserted through its uh, jaw here into, into the throat and inject the right combination of milk. Go in there when, when, when it's asleep, and, and rub its anal genital area so it gets waste removal done. Never sees another rat, but yet when it's in its thirties, it will still play. So to me, that says, yeah, you really don't. So need, it's it's hardwired. It's hardwired. How how, yeah. how to effectively use it requires experience and learning, but using it does not. Okay, so you've you've calmed my <laughs> my my question on that uh and i just i mean i guess i'm just i'm asking about it because people don't often tend to think of behaviors in that way you know like we all, we often talk about instinct and you know these kind of things like animal instinct and you, things that you know birds just know how to make nests and and that kind of thing which when you think about um you know the classic reductionist of just reducing it all to genes mm -hmm. It doesn't really make sense. How do you go from genes to then like complex behaviors that are passed down from generation to generation? I mean, that's a whole black box that maybe we don't, we don't, we obviously don't fully understand yet. But that's 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 always fascinating to me. And then because then that means that not only do behaviors are they passed on, but they're then you know subject to selection from various you know influences stuff. So you could say we sort of been evolved to play and you can you can have these behaviors again i'm kind of just throwing out a random you know my random thoughts at you but uh do you have what do you what do you think of that remember i said i started getting into behavior and development by studying a bird australian magpie back in the 70s it was sort of people were accepting okay you know this instinct innate kind of stuff yeah that applies to insects yeah it probably applies to birds and reptiles but mammals are special. For mammals, most things are, are, are gained through experience. And, well, two things have changed since then. W one is, well, birds depend a lot on experience as well. And second, even things that seem to be 
learned in, in, the, in the vague sense of the word lear, learned in mammals actually requires some built-in aspects to make sure that they learn what they need to learn from the experience rather than something random. So I'll give you a fantastic example. So this classic story, if you're something like a rhesus monkey and you're born in captivity and you're shown a snake, you just look at it. You go, well, that's, that's an interesting looking squirmy thing. If you get a rhesus monkey that's been born in the wild and bring it in captivity and show it a snake, it'll freak out. It'll show a, a rhesus monkey fear response, right? So the obvious conclusion is, well, obviously, you have to learn to be fearful of snakes. Either you had a close call with a snake, or most probably, given that you're a social animal like a monkey, you probably learned it from watching somebody else show fear towards snake. So a nice set of experiments were done where they had monkeys that reacted to the snake with fear and monkeys that didn't. Then showed and then filmed these, videotaped them, and then showed the the non-fearful snake, ah, sorry, the non-fearful monkey, a video of a monkey reacting fearfully to a snake. Then they presented the snake again to the non-fearful monkey, and guess what? It showed a fear response. So clearly, the hmm. the monkey learned to fear the snake by observational learning. Hey, if somebody else is afraid of this thing, obviously it's something to be fearful about. Okay, typically what you would think. Oh, yeah, this is learning, obviously. Complex mammal, complex brain. That's got to learn all the important things in life. However, the, the researcher was a little bit more nuanced than your average learning kind of researcher. And, and they said, well, you know, but, but it's a snake. And, you know, snakes are dangerous. So is it learning something special from, from observing? Because the stimulus is biologically relevant so what she did was she doctored the videos used new new monkeys new non-fearful monkeys and doctored the video so what she did was she got a, a monkey to react fearfully to a snake but then the the video was changed so instead of seeing a snake there it was a rose now the hmm. non-fearful monkey was exposed to seeing another monkey react fearfully to a flower. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's just learning, hey, if you're scared of this, it must be fearful, I must be scared as well, then you would expect the naive monkey to react fearfully when it's presented with a flower. And it wasn't. So it learned to fear the snake if the other monkey was fearful of the snake. But it didn't learn to be fearful of innocuous objects like flowers if the monkey was fearful to those. So that means, yeah, the animal is learning, but the brain is prepared to learn certain things rather than others. There's some filtering there, right? And that's an innate component. Wow. And, and yeah, because if you think about it, if, if, you just learn, if you're just capable of learning everything like an open sieve, right, except anything that comes in, you're going to learn so much rubbish that's totally irrelevant to your life, <laughs> right? So yeah. your brain has to have a way of going, okay, th these are important things, but we're only going to accept them as important if you encounter the right environmental context. And this other stuff, no matter what the context is, they're always going to be relevant. 
you're never going to get bitten by a flower and get killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so this is again, like, I don't know, I feel like I'm, maybe I'm pushing this a bit much, but I always think about these things in a sort of, and again, maybe it's a reductionist way of thinking about it, but it kind of, it, to me, it means, you know, that, that this information or this, this capacity to, let's say, make that distinction between this is important information that I need to learn this is hardwired in there. But so how is that passed on? Because we understand genes are passed on. And again, and I guess maybe again, I'm asking you a question that's the answer is, well, we don't know. It's in that black box that's somewhere between that, that gene and environment mix. And I think this is something that maybe people in the audience don't think about a lot, or maybe they're starting to come around to it. Everyone kind of knows this idea of nature and nurture, right? And that it's likely a mix. And I think what you just, that example just showed is that it it very much is this mix. There's there's a capacity capacity for nurture, for environment, for learning, all of this stuff. But there is nature in there. So that nature, how is that passed on? Do you think it's it's like the structure of the brain, like the brain has physically evolved to have these certain pathways or certain connections in it that then count for this kind of ability or account for this kind of information because it can seem like a magical bit of information is just passed on like a fear of snakes you know or something like this does that make sense or am i just going way off here <laughs> no yeah so let, let, let's like, let's stick with this example of learning to fear snakes right because that that is the logical question. so what is it about a snake is it you just need to have someone trigger this whole circuit in your brain that says snakes all of a sudden mm -hmm. become important objects in the world to be careful of or how, how do you go from that genetic transfer to that to this so another set of experiments took naive rhesus monkeys again right and just showed them vid so they're in a cage so they're in a boring environment and you show them videos in front of them there's a screen and you show them videos of stuff flowers pots toys and what you can do is you can just have in front of the camera a little thing that, that looks at their eyes and, and tracks them. Mm. And you can see, well, how much time do they spend looking at these things? And naive monkeys will spend more time looking at a snake than other objects. Now, they're not afraid of the snake, but clearly it's built into them that for whatever, I don't know why, but this thing is important. So I'm spending more time attending to it. It's been broken down further with further experiments because you can, again, doctor the snakes. So you can have snakes that are smooth skins versus right. snakes that have clear scales. And so if you just show them a patch of skin that's either smooth or it's got scales in it, so if you're not even showing them the whole snake, naive monkeys spend more time mm. looking at scaly things than non-scaly things. So again, now if you think about it, the genetic information doesn't have to do a lot of work. It just has to have enough information in there to help wire up the part of the visual system in the, in the brain that attends the pattern. Right. And just basically wire it up in a way that says these sorts of patterns are important. Mm -hmm. Attend to them. Then you need these real-life experiences right. to learn, okay, now I know why they're important. So again, the, the work from genes to the behavior doesn't have to be that that big. You just need these little prompts to bias the system 
to to attend to certain things in the world right, as being right, more right, relevant right. than other things. Wow. And then I think what we know, like I've, I've been more and more um, reading and, and hearing stuff about, you know, getting away from this idea of like the genes I view, right? Like it's all just the genes, right? There's all these other epigenetics and all of these other things that, that, that can be inherited that influence these things. And it seems like behavior would be one of these things that, you know, we've, you show how it affects the brain, like physically and stuff like this. So it's really quite an important, uh, you know, not just for the development in, in the lifespan of the individual, but probably for your children and your, your, your progeny and stuff like that. You know, like if you don't develop properly because of these behaviors and tuning these behaviors, that's going to affect further generations. So it's like this other selection window or you know something for for evolution to to be selected for which that i think is also fascinating and i think yep. they've shown this with stress right when you're under stress it, you can see that imprinting in the in the generations of progeny well can can, can i bring up a counterpoint to that that please <laughs> gives a different slant to all right to that whole perspective okay so stresses can affect development and things like executive functions and endocrine function and all kinds of good stuff, right? And they can be passed on transgenerationally. And I've told you this good news story about play. Playing at a certain age helps refine these skills that make you more capable of dealing with social situations, more capable of being nuanced in your behavior, better able to figure out how to resolve problems, et cetera, right? But think about who, who the researchers are. They're usually middle-class people who live in a pretty comfortable world. And our kids, well, in order for them to also live in that comfortable world we live in, well, you know, some of the skills that they need to have are good social skills, good, good capacity to read a situation and find a nuanced way of cooperating mm -hmm. with people, et cetera, et cetera, right? However, if, if you grow up, in a in a place where just getting your next meal is a big challenge, then all of a sudden, well, you know, if if somebody's got some food and I don't, and I'm starving, no, no matter how socially skilled I am to negotiate with them to try to get some breadcrumbs out of them, that's probably not going to be enough to sustain me. <laughs> the best thing I can do is get a club, bash that person over the head and steal their food. So actually, in some environments, not being so nuanced is actually mm -hmm. adaptive. So a lot of this stuff has never really been, except, except for some evolutionary biologists, has never been looked at in terms of, yeah, but how, how, does, how does that skill set, whatever it is, fit into the life history of that particular person in that particular population right. with those right, particular right, right. resource constraints? So just because it's negative from our sort of absolutist point of view, it doesn't mean it's negative from the point of view of right. that person living in the environment they're living in. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, when, would being, when would being playful be non, <laughs> not useful yeah. uh, and therefore like not adaptive? Yeah. yeah. But I guess that just then to me, then it, 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 it again says that these things are, are – are sort of under the force of selection, right? Like the environment will can can help determine like when you when you use these things. So we all have these, you know, they're hardwired for it. But the environment has plays such a role in in 
in shaping how you use those those hardwired instincts we'll call them fascinating so my other question then about play switching gears a little bit mm -hmm. is so obviously the reciprocity is a big thing you mentioned that that's how you can kind of tell that it's a playful interaction and this kind of touches on the work that my wife Teresa did with the you look at the noises that the that the rats are emitting while they're playing and there appears to be some kind of positive connotation to the play as well so they're 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 communicating with each other that this is a playful scenario maybe I'm butchering this I don't know I swear to God Teresa if you're listening to this I do listen when you when you tell me these things <laughs> but I just might be misinterpreting but I guess the root of the question is does it is it enjoyable for them? And is that a, a, a component that's necessary for play? And is that anthropomorphizing it too much? Or is there something about being in a good mood, a positive mood, let's say, that's essential to play? Yeah, so you're not butchering it too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> there, there, there is, <laughs> again, because... Uh, the answer is is yes and no. Right, of course. So, so, so yes. Uh, in most situations, if if you're in a playful mood, you're in a good mood. Like if, even even you as a parent, think about it. If if you've had a bad day and you're in a grumpy mood, and and your son wants to come and play with you, yeah, right, yeah, you really have to force yourself to to be playful, right? Whereas you come home, you're in a good mood, the kid comes to play with you, you jump into that straight away. You're like, this is a lot of fun. You enjoy it as well. So, yeah, mo most play is associated with a happy mood, a good mood. And a lot of those vocalizations help animals keep each other in a good mood. So mm -hmm. we move the vocalizations and they're less playful. They're still playful, but less playful. So clearly it's a mood enhancer, positive. But the reason why I say it's complicated is because particularly in post-juvenile play, so adolescents, adults, for many species, will continue to play. But as you get older, the play may not be as common, but, you, but many species use the play as a way of navigating social relationships. So, for example, in rats, they don't play as much, but adults will play with each other. And typically, they're colony-living animals, so... You have a hierarchy, you usually have a dominant male, and then all the other males are subordinate to that male, and all the females are subordinate to all the, all the males. And what they'll do is they'll preferentially interact playfully with the dominant. And basically, they use that play to reinforce hmm. to the dominant that, hey, I'm accepting you as the top dog here. So they're manipulating the situation. But sometimes a subordinate goes, you know, I think I can take you on. So they'll initiate play with the dominant, but then make it rougher and rougher and rougher. And if that dominant allows that to happen, then it can be used as a way of re reversing the dominance relationship. So there's a negative side to play. And in some situations, it's been shown for some species, that social play can actually be used as a way of a dominant making sure that a subordinate understands that it's dominant. So I come along and I'm going to force you to take the submissive role in the play. And if you don't, I'm, I'm going to hit you hard, right? So in that situation, 
a subordinate being approached by a dominant to play mm-hmm. is probably not in a good mood, right? Like this is not fun for me because I know he's really asserting his dominance over me. So I'm not going to enjoy it. The dominant might, but I might not. So there probably are situations right. where it may not be equally fun for both members, right? So that, that's where some of the complication comes in. But certainly for large-brained animals that are able to adapt, particularly if they've had a lot of play before and know, okay, what's expected of me, you go, okay, I'm going to pretend I'm playing and enjoying mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But even though as soon as yeah. you turn your back, I'm out of but here. But I mean, that, yeah, and that seems like it's very much in the constraints of a, like of a hierarchy. I mean, and, and it's probably a stretch maybe to, 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 to put this to humans yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But I mean, I guess you could kind of see, I mean, it sounds like bullying, right? Uh, and it also kind of sounds like deceptive, you know, like in a way, like playing a sort of deceptive game yeah. of, you know, I'm going to pretend to play with you and then, you know, flip it around at the last second or something like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you don't want to extrapolate too much from animal to human, but is there some kind of connection there or you know something to be learned about human behavior well i think there are there are there are two extrapolations one is for childhood play in humans particularly social play it does actually influence the development of the prefrontal cortex and associated executive function skills that's that's been demonstrated experimentally now so i think there is a commonality there and and really the the core feature of mm-hmm. the play is the two or more individuals involved having to negotiate what they do together, which is what you do in rough and tumble play, negotiating, you know, how much you win and I win right. and so on. So that that basic story I told you about rats seems to apply to humans as well, developmentally. Humans are one of the about one of the fifty percent of species of primates that do engage in adult adult play, both post pubescent in adolescence and post adolescence in young adulthood and there you see this use of play as a way of negotiating so you know even if let's say you were living back in Lethbridge and we'd have a a monthly uh, poker game going on with a group of friends you know we'd use that game as a way of assessing not only having the fun of the game but also assessing how things are going like like if if you and I normally are jovial with one another but then in this particular day you're sort of curt in a way that sort of indicates, huh, I, it gives me a clue that maybe I annoyed you in some way. And so we can use this game as a way of assessing, are there any changes in the relationship that we need to attend to? And certainly you can think of things like, um, like we're not allowed to do rough and tumble in, in a workplace, <laughs> obviously, anymore. Maybe we used to back in the <laughs> 50s and 60s, but not now. But there's still, if you think of jokes, particularly jokes that are directed against somebody, they have a, a play fighting kind of quality, which is I'm gonna I'm gonna say make a joke out of something that you've done or you do. And if you get offended, I'll say, Oh, Brad, it was just a joke. Just like if you go over the line in rough and tumble play and the other animal reacts negatively, you say, oh, you can use those vocalizations or whatever other signal you use depending on the species. Say, mm-hmm. well, I was only playing. And so you've got to get out of jail free card. So Aspects of rough and tumble play can still be enacted to negotiate and explore social relationships. I know when I first got here, one of my senior colleagues continually 
made me the butt, butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I went, okay, this, this is, you just hit my mm-hmm. red line. And so I confronted him over it. And then he backed off because clearly he knew that's as far as he could push me. But until then, well, I was taking it and everybody else was laughing. But, but again, it's sort of that negotiation which has got that playful quality to it. Right. So it's kind of like uh, play almost gives you the excuse to sort of sort out different things about the relationships, whether like how much is this person going to take or is they, are they having a good day? Are they upset with me? That kind of, it's just like it gives you the cover to do that yeah. in a way that might otherwise be yeah. too confrontational, too aggressive. And escalate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. Because I was thinking about it when you said the poker game example, uh, I was thinking about it just like, well, you know, there would be other cues, there would be other scenarios in which you could you could communicate this stuff to each other, right? But then the joking thing really kind of made sense that it's like, it really does kind of give you this this cover, right? Like this, oh, I was just joking and you can kind of, you get the reciprocity. I know with my friends uh, like that I grew up with from, you know, junior high, high school, it's ruthless with the joking. Like, and if you don't, yeah, yeah. if you don't like it, you're not going to, you're not going to survive amongst these people because it's, it's just, it's ruthless, but it's back and forth. It's like it, it everybody jokes with everybody. So it's not, it's not one right. person getting picked on all the time. So there is that reciprocity and everyone's able to, to laugh and and everyone enjoys it. So there's kind of a bonding thing. I've always thought that there's kind of a bonding thing around that, you know, being able to to tease, yeah. right? That's that's interesting and you could see how that would uh, yeah, just managing social relationships as as complex social creatures. Yep. Okay, so here's one again maybe kind of shift well, definitely shifting gears. Uh thinking about, you know, the playful nature, you know, the positive you know, mood and whatnot that's that's produced by some kinds of play is a question that I've always grappled with. And I've talked with Teresa about this, and maybe it's a bit out of your 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 direct field, but I would be very curious to hear your your take on it. And it's emotion in, let's say, animals. We're all animals, humans, so we'll put humans in the animal category. Again, a lot of people talk about, is it learned? Is it not learned? But I'm kind of getting more of a sense that emotion would be something, again, that's hardwired, but then is, you know, sharpened with experience and behavior. But I'm just, we'll just throw the question out there. Do animals have emotions or is that too anthropomorphizing of animals? So I'm, I'm in the camp that goes, yeah, animals do have emotions, right? And Here's my problem with, because as soon as you say that, you're sort of creating this split between, well, here are humans on this side and here are animals on that side. Right. Right. And the first problem I have with that split is, okay, so you're saying that a chimpanzee is as emotionless as a, as a sponge. They're both animals. But then all of a sudden, yeah. humans are different. Well, as an evolutionary biologist, I just find that kind of sharp demarcation of, of the living world nonsensical. There's a tree here, and and certain properties may attach themselves on certain twiglets, but to have such a sharp divide from one little teeny twig from everything else just seems unlikely to me. And I, I know there are some psychologists and neurobiologists who try to make that distinction that emotions are only meaningful constructs for humans. But 
I've thought about this a lot. And you go, well, how do you know when you're walking down the street and how do you know someone's distressed? You, 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 yeah, you see it on their face, body language, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't have to tell you I'm distressed or you don't have to put um, electrodes on the head and say, oh, yeah, you've got a distressed pattern of activity in your appropriate area of your cortex. You'd see it in their behavior. But the same people that say, oh, it's okay to make an inference that when you see a person show a certain behavior, you can infer what their emotional state is. You see very similar behavior in a chimpanzee, and you go, well, no, you can't infer anything from that. How does that help <laughs> make sense? It doesn't to me. Right. I'm, I'm very scared of dogs. So I'm very attentive to the body language of dogs that I encounter in the street. Because as soon as one shows any inkling that it's showing anger, like I'm up the nearest tree that I can find, right? So I'm actually using mm -hmm. behavioral cues in a dog the same way I use behavioral cues in a human, including my wife. If I see her in a certain state, I go, oh, yeah, you're angry with me, right? <laughs> and, and I change my behavior accordingly. But then to say, well, yeah, but what's going on in my wife's brain when she's angry versus a dog's brain when it's showing the same behavior are completely and utterly different. Even though they share virtually all the same brain bits, again, just does not make sense to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there are some so then, special things that come with having the kind of brain we have, which is enlarged and we've got language. So we can add layers of nuance into how we experience and express our emotions that a dog and a chimpanzee can't. But it doesn't mean that they don't experience those raw emotions as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me that like emotions just as a as a communicative signaling thing that that makes sense uh you're very similar to play and stuff as well you know like if i let you know that i'm upset when you're upset or i show that empathy or you know something like that that it, that increases our bond right like that lets you know that i'm a trustworthy individual and that all of those things right for social creatures that makes sense but i guess people just have a problem with and maybe it's like you said like maybe it's just a complexity thing like emotion is more intertwined with us because we're we have language and all of these different things but you know you'll see these these articles or something about i think it was whales right like so a a mother whale that lost a calf that appeared to be mourning the calf for a period of time and it's you know i think you could look at that and say well you could probably understand that okay it's not it understands that the calf is dead. Like I, th I think we can all say that that the the whale understands, but it's it's it seems like non-adaptive, maladaptive to to spend that time mourning if you're a wild animal, right? Like you got other bigger problems to deal with. You know, finding another mate or food, or you're 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 leaving yourself open to predation and stuff like that. So it seems like it wouldn't be that you know, adaptive, it wouldn't be useful in that scenario. So why would it still be there? And then I think that, well, maybe it's just a, the the bond from mother and child is probably associated with some kind of neurotransmitter, serotonin, whatever it is, and that, you know, it takes time for that to sort of dissipate. And that would be like a really physical explanation for that behavior. But do you think it's actually like sadness in the way that we would experience it? Or is is it, could it be, could you say that? Is that it's, it's sad that it lost and it needs that same thing or is there a more mechanistic thing or 
I don't know. These are the things that I think about. I don't know I, if this I, I is valid yeah. research questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I do give thought to some of these things. Certainly when, when I teach because students do ask questions like that and you have to, well, can I give you a considered opinion on that? So, yeah. So, yeah. So, so here's, here's my take on it. You go, okay. So, and the way you framed it before is a good starting point that expressing emotions is a way of letting know somebody else what mood you're in. But you go, but you actually, do you really need to have that mood or can I just express it, right? Now, we all experience, we know the difference between someone smiling at us as a polite smile where it really doesn't mean anything about how they feel about us versus a smile that says, I'm really happy to see you. And I'm genuinely feeling that way. You can tell the difference. Mm -hmm. So there was was this great line by George Costanza in Seinfeld (laughs) who said, well, it's not a lie if you believe it. Right, yeah. (laughs) Right? So I'm thinking of that as an adaptive thing. So if, if if you demonstrate behaviorally a particular emotional state, but the other animal doesn't know whether to believe it or not because it could be a fake expression or it could be a genuine expression, then it's no longer adaptive to express it. It only becomes a, a useful signal if the other animal can believe it. And the only way it can believe it is if it's an actual true reflection of the internal state of the animal expressing it. So to me, in that sense, emotions are real and they're real for all organisms that can express them because it's to their advantage to let somebody know you're sad, to let somebody know you're angry, and they have to believe you, right? Which means it has to be a, a real mm-hmm. expression of how you really feel most of the time. Sometimes you can cheat, but if you cheat all the time, then nobody is ever going to believe you, right? It, it, right, right? Cheating only works if most of the time you actually can be relied on to be telling the truth. So, you know, I've got a good reputation in my department because everybody knows Talis will tell you what he really thinks. But... You know, 1% of the time I don't because I capitalize on the fact that I've got a good reputation. Well, shit, I just said that on in a public forum. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm not the only one, right? And and so I think that's why if, if, if that whale is truly showing sadness, which I don't know for grief, I don't know if it is, as an anecdote, it's hard to know. But if it is, it probably, it, it makes sense that, well, yeah, it can't only show sadness or happiness as a social signal without any real content, which means that it's not maladaptive because, oh, damn, if you want this for the good things, you have to pay a cost. And the cost is sometimes you end up feeling that way in a situation where actually it would be better if you didn't. Right, right. There's consequences. There has to be consequences to it. Otherwise, yeah. we're all just faking it. Yeah, we're all just yeah, exactly psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We can all be Trumps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I was thinking of that exact thing because then as soon as you say that, right, like it makes sense that, the you know, there's a cost to this thing, but you you need that. It has to be genuine in order for others to trust the signal, right? So in order yeah. for the signal yeah. to have any merit, to have any value, it has to be, yeah, trustworthy. And that makes a lot of sense then with emotions that they would become 
hardwired to the point where you you can't fake them you know you can't yeah you 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 can't lie about it you know you can tell that but then there are the 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 weirdos out there that you you know do and i was thinking trump for sure i mean he seems a little like we all know the game you know maybe that's just because we've seen too much but you know there is genuinely you know psychopaths out there that that's like one of the traits you know that 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 is that they have an inability to to actually feel those emotions or that reciprocity of that, but they're very good at faking it. They're very good. So that, I guess, yeah. then speaks to the learned aspect of the yeah. behaviors, right? So that's an interesting one right there. And, and I think actors are another category where they, <laughs> they have to learn how to be able to make their expression of emotions genuine when they're just acting them. They're not really feeling that way, right? And, and, and the fact that not all actors are good actors and not all of us are, can become actors indicates that it's a pretty hard thing to learn. And so you're saying that's why actors are also weird, right? I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, you could see it that it's like if you had like that sort of, say, you know, it's on a spectrum, right, of being able to do these things. And so that ability you could see as maybe you would have to have, the consequence would be you would have to be a little maybe less genuine in your actual emotions on your day to day. And because, you you know, people say that, that actors are kind of weird. There's a narcissism with it, you know, wanting to do that job. Yeah. And there's the other thing, as I've always thought of like, well, is that just a consequence of they become famous and they get that, you know, that spoiled brat sort of treatment? Or is there really something emotionally with these people that 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 predisposes them to that kind of work, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are there could be examples going both but fit both those cases well this has been a lot of fun i've really enjoyed this uh we've been we've been talking for an hour so i I won't keep you too much longer but i just i think i'll leave it to you to maybe you know throw out a last point that that you want to say about you know the importance of play and why why studying it in a in a wide variety of species is is useful because i think it's People always say that, you know, like, why, you know, who cares if monkeys play or pigs or whatever, right? But uh, if you wanted to give us a, sum, you know, sort of a summary sort of parting thing on on play, uh, what would it be? Okay, so I'll, I'll put on my zoologist hat from back as a graduate student from not understanding why my magpies were playing to now being able to tell you a, a pretty good and hopefully relatively convincing story of what value there is in play. Now, let me go back and go, yeah, that's what I would have said as a a 20-something-year-old studying magpies. Yeah, that's great. And it works for rats, seems to work for people, seems to work for some monkeys, but it actually doesn't explain the rough-and-tumble play you see in lots of species where no benefits like this have been demonstrated to accrue, which means that some animals must be playing and get nothing out of it. Secondly, if this play was so important, then why do most animals on the planet not play? Hmm. So it, it doesn't explain the absence of playing most of the animal kingdom. And, and you've studied lots of invertebrates in, in, in <laughs> your career. You know, well, you probably haven't seen it, it looks playful. You go, why not? Then the third thing that I want to end on is what I've told you about is the value of a, a, for, a particular form of play, social play, particular rough and tumble play or its offshoots that seems to be important for developing certain 
social skills and, and other associated skills in some mammals, probably a few birds. But we haven't talked about the broader breadth of play, mm. which is locomotor play, running around, playing with objects. No one's yet demonstrated two things. One, that these non-social forms of play follow the same rules as social play, have the same brain mechanisms as social play, and whether they actually have any benefits. And in fact, in the human literature, tons of experiments that have been done with object play because the obvious inference is by learning how to manipulate objects, you get better manual skills, better uh, skills for construction, for deconstructing. Well, there's there's no experimental evidence for that. So that means that there's still a huge hole in our knowledge about play as a general category. What I've told you about is that a particular small part of that universe has now got an under, a comprehensible mm-hmm. explanation that we didn't have 50 years ago. But we've still got a large part of that universe of play that doesn't make any sense yet. And so for any young listeners you have, there's still lots of big holes to plug into understanding the world of play. There was just a paper with uh, bees showing bees playing with uh, with balls. I don't know if you saw that one. Yeah, unfortunately, I did. Um, <laughs> Not convincing. <laughs> I can't go into the history of my knowledge about that work, but there are a couple of problems with it. Ostensibly, it looks like play. If a cat was doing that, you go, yeah, that's play. But why, why balls? Does that mean mm. if you threw a thimble in there, it wouldn't play with it? So is there something special about balls? And, and what in the life history of bees would make balls an important salient feature of their lives? <clears throat> One thing you've got to understand is that they first found that phenomenon by training be- these bumblebees to roll balls in order to gain a reward, which is mm. no longer play, right? But right. then they found that, <clears throat> okay, now when they're no longer getting a reward, they're still rolling balls just for the same of the help for the hell of it so there is a playful element there right so it's it's not a clear-cut case like the rough and tumble play of rats or or some other object play in some other animals because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's not it's not clear just how much the constraints of the context in which they train the animals and they reared the animals actually made this artifact possible not not 100% convinced. Yeah, okay. I mean that makes sense and that's like a still intriguing. Yes, definitely. I mean and we can we can still wrap it up from there without opening up a, another big can of worms. Well, let, let, can, can I just finish with one more example to Please. Most of the time we've talked about play, we we think of young animals. The the problem with the bees is that well they they're already pretty much adults. They're just one one molt shy, shy from being fully adult. There's pretty good set of studies with captive octopus, adult octopus, showing that they engage in object play and they meet all the criteria. Again, you go, well, if, you know, if, if a mammal was showing this, you would call it play. So other than our reverse anthropomorphizing of if it doesn't look like us, then it can't be doing anything like us. Mm-hmm. It, it is play. But the interesting thing about the octopus is, well, but these are adult animals. And one of the researchers that showed this 
she's been a long-term octopus researcher, and, I, and she spent a lot of time in the field. And one question I asked her is, well, have you ever seen an octopus in the wild do this? And the answer is no. Mm. Harder to study, but earlier stages of development of octopus don't do this. It's restricted to adult, adult octopus living in a captive environment where basically food is provided at libidum, everything's right. So one possible lesson to learn from that is that, okay, this octopus is playing, but it is playing not because there's any adaptive value to it. There's nothing to be gained from it. It hasn't got mechanisms built in to make it play, but rather one of the critical things about octopus that makes them very different from most other invertebrates is the size of their brain. They probably got a brain that in a captive environment goes, man, this is a really boring place to live. And now they will do things mm-hmm. to occupy themselves and they go into play. It's possible that some organisms have the capacity to play. It may not be part of their normal repertoire, but play may be an escape valve under certain situations to remedy boredom. I think the octopus exemplifies that that could be one of the conditions necessary to make play possible in the early stages of evolution before it actually has an adaptive value to it. Mm-hmm. So something to, to consider as a, a different nuance to the kind of story I've been telling you about, you know, mammals playing in a certain way at a certain age, blah, 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 and built in and all that. And I mean, we know boredom is is a is a big driving factor for humans too. Like humans hate boredom, yep. <laughs> hate boredom. Yep. Uh, so it's a maybe it's a function of the big brain. But it, it's interesting to think that that's where you know, you know, in an octopus we think like evolutionarily old, big brain. This fighting boredom is maybe where that playful, you know, thing started, kind of thing in some ancient, ancient, ancient creature. Yeah, that's wild. That's an interesting thought. Okay, we'll leave it there. Serge, this is great. I, I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I appreciate it. As always, it's it's great to catch up with you. But my pleasure, and it's good to see you also. And say hi to Teresa and Henry Paul. Will do, will do. And there we go, done. What a great conversation with Dr. Sergio Pellis, all the way from Down Under to Lethbridge. Thank you again to Dr. Pellis for joining us. Thank you for listening. Remember, head over to our website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. Check out Newsly, newsly.me. Both will have links in the, in the show notes. And stay tuned. We'll be back in December. There might even be an appearance from British Brad. I can't guarantee. He's a big star these days. Uh, what else? I think that's it. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.